0: Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Investment Editor at FT Advisor. Today we are discussing how to invest in innovation at a time of market volatility, higher interest rates and global economic uncertainty. The guests are Paul Major, who runs the Bellevue Healthcare Investment Trust, Ian Mortimer, who runs the Guinness Global Innovators Fund, and Kamal Warach, Head of Equity Fund Research at Canaccord Genuity. Thank you all for joining me this morning, guys. Um, Kamal, if we, if we come to you uh, first for the first question, whenever an investment theme or asset class becomes popular or fashionable, some uh, particularly early stage companies can get very large valuations very quickly. But how do, how do you think about sifting through, whether at the fund level or the stock level, sifting through what's out there to discover which are actually worth owning uh, for the longer term?
1: Well, firstly, uh, thank you very much for, for having me on. Uh, much appreciated. And, yeah, great question to, to kick off. Um, I think, broadly, it's themes that really help investors find spaces where disruptive innovation and new business models can prosper. So it's really thematic investing which has evolved over time to help investors narrow down the universe. Because you're right, I mean, you, you can get um, you know, all sorts of things happening. The madness of crowds is is very much a clear and present danger in, in thematic investing, and, and you need to avoid pitfalls and, and traps when embracing opportunities. So staying focused on... What we would describe as powerful and durable themes, where I suppose uh, y- y- you're getting innovation to solve imbalances in the world that that's probably the way that we would look at it
0: um so, so Ian um with your uh, global innovators fund, I guess everybody in the world tells you they're they're an innovative company right nobody says we're we're not innovating at all we're really boring, but alongside that you've also got. Areas where there's lots of innovation in science or just in human understanding, but how do you, how do you square that off so that the uh, the good science or the good insights into the world, how do you understand which ones can become good companies and how important is, is valuation within within that?
2: Yeah, thank you, and um, great to be here. I think um, sort of echoing, I think what um, Kamal was saying. Um, I think the thematic approach is a really helpful starting point um, and, and ultimately what are we trying to achieve it's we're trying to find companies that can grow successfully uh, and profitably into the future we think that's the sort of factor you're trying to capture with this type of investing um, but i think what's also very important is that that can take you so far um, and i think one of the issues of just having a singular view on the theme is that to your point things can kind of run away from you slightly. You're buying the story rather than the investment. Um, And I think what often happens is, um, is you have this sort of hype cycles that we see again and again. Uh, And you kind of, As you say, sort of people get very excited about the story. People then predict forward how impactful that may or may not be. Uh, And often um, I think where investors look is the sort of pure play type companies, the ones that have the most exposure or the biggest bang for the buck potentially in the future. Um, And I think the problem with that is it's incredibly difficult from a probability point of view to pick which ones are going to be the winners in the future. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. You know, you look at Tesla or um, NVIDIA, whatever it might be, and you remember the successful ones that have the significant total returns from the starting point. However, if you go back in time and you lay out 100 of those companies, trying to pick the one or two that end up being that successful is extremely difficult. Um, So I think what we're trying to say is, just because a company is innovative or it's associated with an exciting theme does not necessarily make it a good investment. So it's a good starting point, but I think what UN want to do is take a step back and improve your probability of a good return by considering things like quality. Does the company have a you know, high return on capital? What's the balance sheet strength of this business? Does it already have cash flows that it can then rely on? And you may be able to understand. Uh, And therefore, you're limiting some of those risks of just buying the theme, if you like. Um, And I think an important part of that, ultimately, is why would you buy a disruptive early stage company? Because the potential sort of return is so vast, the kind of venture capital type approach, the 10 baggers but actually if you if you look back over time there's quite a lot of good evidence to suggest the 10 baggers generally start as reasonably priced companies which actually are profitable and have earnings and the way they become 10 baggers is they tend to grow their top line improve their margins and then you get a big re-rating alongside so actually what we're saying is you can get good investments but you're not precluding yourself from getting those sort of significant winners, but I think you're limiting some of the risks, and I think that's a really key part of what we're trying to achieve and um, a good cross-check against those exciting ideas.
0: Thank you. Well, Paul, your uh, your colleagues have uh, set it up nicely for you mentioning uh, mentioning a focus on on themes. Obviously, uh, healthcare is the is the theme uh, of your of your trust, and healthcare indeed is is an area where. It's maybe become very, very fashionable, and and there's a lot of uh, investor interest there for a variety of reasons. So you must be getting um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, companies coming to you now seeking investment. How do you sift through what's there, particularly in a, in a scientific field, to understand w- where uh, genuine business may may emerge?
3: Sure, I think I would echo a lot of the the, the things that Ian's just touched on. I mean. Within healthcare, you know, it's a highly regulated industry. A lot of the very early stage research actually happens in the public domain in academia. It's it's out there through scientific conferences and, and things like that. So, it's a very very competitive field with with large upfront costs and um, lots and lots of, of of rapid innovation. So, I think the most important things, to my mind, are firstly, you have to have a disciplined Valuation approach and framework, and you have to apply that consistently because the reality is that not every company is going to make it, and therefore you you, you shouldn't, as Ian said, you shouldn't be be paying for hype. You should be taking some kind of probability-adjusted net present value type approach to say, is there an opportunity for me to actually see this as a, as a as a cash flow positive money making company in the future? Can it get there? Is it going to be able to secure the financing to bridge that gap? Because in, in the industry that I follow, you know, we're often talking about billion dollar plus development costs. You're talking about timeline seven plus years before something gets to the market and then can begin to to, to imagine being being profitable. So I, I think having a framework and being really, really considered is, is, is absolutely critical. And I I think as well, being aware of the competitive uh, environment around each company, it's all very well to say, if you take AI, for example, you say, oh, oh, such and such a company has got uh, a large language model and therefore it's going to be bought by everybody. It's going to be the the cornerstone of some new generation of technology. But the reality is there's always something else in development. There's always something further down the line. So I think for for us, what, what we spend a lot of time doing is essentially putting everybody into buckets and identifying what, real world practical problems they're solving and then saying what's the the most likely approach to work for that problem? What gives us the highest level of operational gearing into a viable solution and then we can look at valuation, we look at what we're paying for exposure to that opportunity like Ian said and if that stacks up then, then, then clearly it's 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 a it's a worthwhile investment. On the other hand, if things get ahead of themselves, you've got to have that discipline to 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 sell out. And I think we are ultimately accountable to our investors. It's it's very easy to have a conversation with them to explain that you didn't buy a stock because it was ridiculously expensive. It's much harder to explain to an investor you've lost a load of their money because you did buy a ridiculously expensive stock that's now worthless. So I think having that discipline, that framework. Across all the different opportunities you haven 't been consistent is really critical thank you and uh, paul we will we'll stick
0: with you for the for the next question within your um, within your investment universe, how do you think about diversification? Is it about owning small positions in a large number of, of companies in each area or or is it more diversified by theme?
3: For for us, so, so we're we're a sort of cross healthcare uh, company. But but again, if you think about healthcare as a sort of societal problem that needs to be addressed, you know there there are always going to be people getting sick. The, the systems are going to always struggle to meet that demand, and they need to do that in in a cost effective. Manner for society because we 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 can't continue to afford to grow the healthcare budget faster than inflation for, for for the rest of time. So again, it comes down to looking at the different opportunities and and having exposure to all the interesting areas of that bucket. You, you know, for example, everybody gets excited about a new and ex- uh, sexy drug for Alzheimer's disease. For example, the reality is that the drugs everybody's getting excited about right now, 99% of all the drugs ever invented in Alzheimer's or, or, or tried to be invented sort of haven't worked and the ones that we have that are supposedly revolutionary today have negligible barely detectable real world benefits that, that you would feel in in terms of being a patient so you look at those sorts of things and you say well, well actually that's that's very high risk so what we try and look at is is across that whole panoply of of opportunities within the healthcare so one dollar and four is spent on on administration so we we make sure we've got exposure to you, you know tools that, that help hospitals run better and and predict uh, where to spend your healthcare dollar they're just as important as the next exciting drug or medical device and i think that's the way that we can achieve diversification within what appears to be a, a single sector fund just by looking at all the different parts of the ecosystem thank you and uh, uh, Kamal, uh
0: when you're uh, constructing portfolios, that kind of continuity, and obviously you want you want to have some exposure to to innovation, but how do you how do you think about diversification? Is it uh, a sprinkle the uh, the allocation across uh, a number of uh, investments, or uh, uh, on the basis that some will some will be best in class, or is it more thematic?
1: Yeah, another great question. I I think um, just echoing a comment from earlier, it is incredibly difficult for investors to select the winners of any particular theme. That you know, it's an incredibly difficult task, and so we would recommend a healthy, a healthy slug of diversification, um, certainly across themes. um, You know, getting a good balance of sectors and regional exposure that's uh that's of paramount importance making sure you're properly diversified on on many different levels but over diversification is also a very real problem um Mm -hmm. managers need to address the balance between conviction and diversification because we know that if you go too far in diversification you can get to a point where your risk appetite starts to you know your, your your lower tolerance for risk starts to damage your potential returns and so you have to really balance that and be conscious of it so yeah diversify by by theme because picking the ultimate winner of course is difficult but ensuring you've still got conviction so for us we would like to focus on our highest conviction themes so we have a number of themes in the portfolio but we don't go overboard we maintain conviction in maybe two or three prominent themes in a portfolio and have them run through our models
0: thank you uh kamal and um ian same question really within the global innovators fund is it a question of identifying three or four innovative te- themes or is it a question of sprinkling uh, the capital far-, far and wide
2: yeah i mean i, I can answer that a, a couple of ways so firstly in terms of sort of portfolio construction um, we actually run a 30-stock equally-weighted portfolio, so all our positions are approximately 3.3%. And I think um, that instills quite a strong discipline to what we're doing. So by having a set number of positions, if we want to buy something, we've got to sell something. So we're really thinking about like, is this our best ideas portfolio? Um, it means we don't have a long tail of small positions that we've sort of forgot about. Uh, and crucially. From your point about diversification, it means we do not get very concentrated bets in single stocks. Um, so our sort of highest weight would be sort of typically 4 4.5% four if that stock had outperformed. Um, and I think when you're looking at uh, investing in growth or innovation, um, you can often get a, a barbell type approach where the winners get really big, um, but then you've got a high concentration risk and therefore your stock specific risk is actually quite large. Um, and I think that's absolutely true through, you know, periods such as the pandemic, for example. We saw that boom-bust type cycle, which is really problematic from an investor point of view because your return profile is that much more volatile. So, I think we've got, you know, we'd like to do that from the portfolio construction point of view. But I think to the point of the um, themes and the general diversification in the actual portfolio from the companies, um, we absolutely do start with uh, a broad list of about nine themes – that is kind of creating our investable universe. So that therefore is already sort of slightly broad. We're then applying a kind of quality cutoff, which was really my first point earlier on, that we want to remove those companies that are very early stage, that are very speculative, and we want to make sure that we're sort of starting with a from investment perspective, these are good businesses. The next stage, what we're doing then, is really taking a step back from all of that and doing bottom-up stock selection. So we're slightly kind of separating the thematic side and the sort of stock selection side. So what that means is when we look at our portfolio, the distribution we have to say the themes within our uh, portfolio relative to our universe will be guided by where we see the best sort of valuation and growth opportunities. Um, And I think that's a really healthy way to go about it. And again, it instills that discipline. I think it avoids some of those behavioural biases where it's really exciting and it's in the news all the time, um, but actually it doesn't necessarily make the best combination from a valuation perspective. When we then look more closely at the diversification of our portfolio, um, we absolutely think, you know, the kind of a broad distribution across different themes is important. And then crucially, ultimately, it's really about do you have companies doing different things? Do you have different economic drivers within your portfolio? And therefore, this portfolio will be more robust in sort of different economic environments. And things like, you know, the semiconductor space would be a good example. NVIDIA is sort of, you know, top of mind at the moment. That's a sort of fabulous semiconductor. That's very different to uh, Infineon that makes uh, more simplistic semiconductors for electric vehicles, which is sort of the, the growing theme, which is then very different to, um, the kind of equipment manufacturers like Applied Materials or uh, LAM, for example. So although your semiconductor holdings will look like uh, one lump, if you like, within that there's quite different exposures, and I think that's the, that's really from a portfolio construction point of view what we're trying to achieve. Thank you for that, Ian. Um, Paul.
0: Um, across the innovative uh universe if I can call it that so not not just in healthcare but across the the universe we've had a number of uh incidents shall we say of bad governance um how do you monitor and understand governance in because you're often dealing with with early stage companies with people who who haven't had like established corporate careers that you can look back on and also you may well be uh, dealing with people who uh, in, in your in your space in the in the healthcare space who who maybe think about the science more than the commerce
3: yeah you've touched on what I think is my my bet noir at the moment so we we, we live in a world where everybody has decided that external ESG ratings are an important point of assessing what fund managers are doing and i I, I get the driver of that but but the problem with with, with all these sorts of things is what, what, when when you start trying to systematize things the approach is not necessarily appropriate for for different companies at different stages so so for example if we take the pharmaceutical industry you have huge multinational companies like Pfizer or Glaxo for example and then you might have a tiny biotech with 20 people in it now when it comes to an ESG rating the questions and the determinants are the same so of course if you're a tiny company you are not going to score as well as your contribution to um uh, you, you know programs to assist Uh, poorer countries or um, your environmental stewardship is not going to be as detailed you're not going to have the same diversity on your board or within your employee base and and so what we often find is that people are people are want to criticize small companies for governance when the reality is that the most important thing for an early stage company is it has the right people doing the right things in the right way so for example the if we're looking at a a highly technically sophisticated company so let's say somebody doing um, you know tools for genetic analysis I want the board to be full of advisors who are leading luminaries in the academic world in those fields so they can interrogate the company about the core technology and ensure that it develops in the appropriate way to meet the needs of the market I'm not as interested in the representation on the board by any other metric because the, the most important thing for a company initially is that it can actually stabilize itself in order to put itself in a position to thrive and grow in the future. And so I think you have to make a really clear differentiation when you're assessing governance between early stage companies that are pre-commercial and, and, and not profitable and the rest of the investable universe that might be out there, you 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 can't make these these apples to oranges comparisons. So, so when we think about governance, it's it's very much from the point of view of of w- what works best for the company. And we generally, with those earlier stage companies, we engage with them very proactively, and we're very interested in having discussions with them about who's advising them, who they talk to about things like capital raises, the timing of those. Um, what sort of investors they're seeking to get in, what their shareholder register looks like, their plans for commercialisation, all, all, all those sorts of things. So, so we take a much more active role with an early stage company because we feel that we have sufficient experience and case studies that we can bring to the table to help them do the best job possible. I think when you've got a much larger company, later stage, more involved, obviously you can take a back seat because you, the, the hope is that they will have all of those systems in place and, and 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 be appropriately advised and so on and so forth. But we've seen a lot of companies uh, along the way be badly advised and and do things that are not in the best interest of shareholders, and and they're the things we're keen to to avoid with with the earlier stage companies. Thank you, and Ian. Um,
0: again, you you know you mu- you must deal with lots of uh, lots of companies that are at a, an earlier stage of their. Their development; they don't have professional executives in some cases. How how do you think about about that? Do you want them to have professional executives? Do you suggest that they have, for example, non-execs who come from from um, from a, a more corporate world?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd have to correct you because actually we don't own lots of very early stage okay. small companies. Sure. Um, and I think really we are more biased towards sort of mid and large cap. Uh, in fact, we have a minimum market cap cutoff of a billion dollars for example um, so we're really not dealing with the very very early stage companies and i th- I think it's it's definitely um, you know a, a skill set and um, a different way of doing things, so I don't want to sort of denigrate that but what I would come back to is that idea where we started is we're trying to capture the the factor if you like of growing companies growing faster than the market and we think we get the best sort of probability of the good returns from sort of maybe kind of skewing away from those early stage companies. Um, and I think, so when we're sort of thinking about governance, I think from to, to Paul's point, um, generally speaking, we are looking at larger companies. We're looking at companies that um, already have uh, a fairly established business um, to a large extent. And therefore, from a government's perspective, if you have those quality kind of cut-offs that I was mentioning earlier, it generally puts you in an area that governance is generally speaking quite good. Um, I think the area of governance that we um, maybe come up against um, more that we would find problematic is probably those sort of large tech type companies with founder shareholders um, who basically can control boards and decide um, which directors come on or don't um, and therefore have sort of um, voting rights. Uh, greater than um, kind of one vote per share, if you like. Um, And Meta would be a good example that's well established. And I think it's going to be interesting. And I think the argument for that was the founder's shareholder is actually a good model because otherwise you wouldn't have got an alphabet. You wouldn't have had a Facebook or Meta because they couldn't have got to that stage without taking some of those risks. And I think I can, you know, we we can understand that. Um, But at some point, I think they're, is definitely an argument um, for those larger companies um, to generally move towards um, what would typically be seen as better governance, which is that kind of one share, um, one vote for per share, uh, and, and smaller shareholders are well looked after. And I think that will potentially come, but it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. Um, I think particularly at the moment, um, as we're seeing potentially a uh, a difficult a, a more a different environment for capital raising as well so whether these types of companies um, can sort of inverted commas get away with it if you like um, because it's capital is going to be harder to come by so therefore those demands uh, might be m- more important if you like going forward so i think that's the that's the main area we wrestle with um, but i think in larger companies generally speaking at the quality side of um, the spectrum um, governance is, is typically quite good Thank you,
0: and uh, Kamal, um, how do you uh, think about that question when you're when you're researching potential investments?
1: Yeah, I, I think yeah, governance has always been incredibly important for for fund managers. It's sort of, you know has been the most important letter in ESG historically, and we've seen lots of challenges around that, around thematic investing and governance in particular with things like EV and mining practices, or the transition to renewable energy and the necessity to keep using fossil fuels as we go through that process. And it's about balancing up the the greater good with the shorter-term impacts of some of these um, decisions that we're making in how to allocate capital. Ideally, what we want to see is that fund managers are engaging with companies, and we want to see their voting records show That we're moving in a better direction. So the general direction of travel is improving over time. And and we are seeing that in many cases. And obviously, it's just being discussed here. That engagement is absolutely key. So we we go beyond that sort of traditional ESG kind of screening and statistical measures to actually look at the real-world impact. You know, are managers engaging? What, What are they saying? To companies and have we seen some tangible evidence that companies are actually listening to fund managers. It goes all the way back to capital allocation and we want to see that managers are doing it really well on behalf of our clients. So that's what I would say. We, We make sure we have that focus on engagement and voting records and we just want to see that the general direction of travel is getting better over time. We understand completely that there are companies going through change. The companies are trying to improve themselves. And often that's where you get the better financial reward as well. So there's definitely a way that you could marry up doing good and getting better returns as well. You, you can absolutely combine that in our view.
0: Thank you, uh, Kamal. Um, Ian, um, to bring a couple of th- points together, I guess, how, how can you think about, Uh, liquidity i mean i I know you you mentioned sort of a a billion dollars is the is the cutoff and that's not a a small company but it's also not a not a mega cap so is is liquidity relevant there but also secondly um people do associate innovation with smaller companies but how do you think
2: about what does innovation look like in that large cap space yeah yeah i think that's right um I guess from a liquidity perspective, as you say, I think we're um, we're relatively comfortable uh, in that sense because we are looking at. We definitely don't look at private companies, for example, um, which would be an area um, that clearly there's very specific issues, particularly if you're running an open-ended fund, um, that we avoid. Um, generally speaking, as you say, the larger companies, from a liquidity perspective, we're we're pretty comfortable with, uh, and particularly if you're then finding quite a lot of opportunities in the US, um, which is a region that we definitely do find opportunities. That's a very sort of deep capital market. uh, And liquidity there is generally speaking very, very strong. Um, I think in terms of the smaller companies versus larger companies, um, in terms of sort of opportunities, um, we absolutely do see larger companies having the ability to um, capture some of the growth um, and the opportunities within different innovative areas. Um, and clearly, if you, know, if you look over you know, the last five or six years, um, you know, the FANG type stocks have been essentially the companies that have been growing fastest, and they happen to have been essentially the largest. Um, I think that's quite unusual if we look back over sort of the history um, uh, of markets, I would say, um, outside of areas such as commodities, for example. Um, and I think that is potentially set. To continue. And I don't think that means small companies will not do well. Um, It's just I think larger companies have the ability often to reinvest quite high levels into things like research and development. Um, I think some of the technological advances we're seeing um, as we get kind of nearer the edge, if you like, demands big companies with big budgets. Um, And a lot of these companies are uh, managing to avoid a lot of the competitive threats. Um, I think one issue you might see uh, with larger companies maybe not doing quite as well as they had historically, maybe, um, is I think there's more of a focus on uh, avoiding uh, the very large companies just buying up all the smaller companies from an M&A perspective. Um, I think that's has been the case forever, if you like, uh, in terms of sort of uh, uh, competition authorities. Um, but that's something we'd you know, keep a close eye on. But really for us, it's about... Can you reinvest back in profitable projects to grow your asset base and maintain a high return on capital? That then grows your cash flows, that then continues to give you those opportunities. And can we assess or be aware of uh, any competitive threats that are coming in? And if you can find those kind of quality compounders, they make excellent investments if you're looking over the longer term, and we absolutely see the opportunities for those in mid and large cap companies. Thank you.
0: Paul, how do you think about, I suppose, the the liquidity question uh, in in particular in your your part of the market?
3: Sure. So our our fund shares some characteristics that that Ian's had. So we we have a maximum of 35 companies in our portfolio. We found actually, interestingly, that around 30 is the the sweet spot to to maximise diversity and concentration. We don't have an equal weighting. We we have a a liquidity-based cap and collar. Um, Healthcare is also quite an unusual industry. So we're talking about a $10 trillion global industry that actually employs about one in seven people who live in the developed world. So it's a huge industry. So our definition of small and mid-cap is probably very different to other people. So we too have a floor of about a billion dollars for a company, but we would consider anything between one and ten billion dollars to be a small cap company and anything between sort of 10 and and you know 30 to be kind of mid-sized that's just the, the the nature of healthcare and the net present value of, of of the franchises that this industry kind of creates but the the way we run the portfolio is we we have um, liquidity constraints at a portfolio level and an individual stock level. We have an annual redemption option as a, as a discount control mechanism. So we need investors to know that we run a very, very liquid portfolio. So what that means in practical terms is we look at market cap, we look at free flow, we look at daily trading uh, volumes, and we have uh, days to liquidate uh, criteria. So what that means is there are there are companies in the portfolio where our exposure is actually capped voluntarily. By the liquidity so uh, but the primary driver of of position size in the portfolio is conviction so conviction first then we run a liquidity filter on top of that and the idea is that that we we can ensure we have a very very liquid portfolio and we're never going to be in a position where you find yourself unable to trade out of a position or manage the the size of the exposure so so whenever we take on a new position our our thought process is we want to be able to build a one and a half percent gross exposure as a minimum because otherwise that that stock is not going to contribute meaningfully to the to the performance of the fund so that that's how we we think about liquidity in, in in a practical sense and you have to be mindful in healthcare there are rapid shifts in in the environment not necessarily regulatory but more competitive around the clinical developments with with your companies or other companies in in adjacent areas so you have to be able to sit there and look at the portfolio every day and say right we need to resize or change our exposure to this particular thematic within healthcare and you can only do that practically if you if, if you're managing the portfolio with a liquidity um, uh, factor um, in in your decision making process thank you um, and, uh,
0: Kamal, how, how important uh, are those considerations, both liquidity and, and market cap uh, diversification and, and the opportunities on large caps? How important are those when you think about um, investing in innovation?
1: Yeah, um, just tackling liquidity first, I think obviously from a fund selection perspective, we, the most important question is can we get our money back? If we, if we need to and how quickly can that take place. So we, we conduct regular liquidity reviews of funds that have a particular bias to small and mid-caps. That That's kind of our remit within our liquidity framework. So ensuring that under certain stress conditions we can get a certain proportion of our money back gives us confidence uh, to continue to allocate capital there. Um, but we also engage with managers to look at their most illiquid holdings and, you know, what that profile tends to look like over time in terms of trading. We want to ensure we haven't got unquoted exposure in, a, in an open-ended vehicle for obvious reasons, um, and just ensuring the liquidity profile is right for the type of risks that we're willing to take with the strategy. So, yeah, we conduct liquidity reviews all the time Um yeah, often quarterly is our benchmark now, but but we have done it monthly on occasions where we're a little bit more um, paying a bit more attention to to the strategy. So yeah, it really depends. But liquidity, of course, is paramount. Goes hand in hand with capacity as well. We want to ensure that funds don't grow too quickly and ensure that they can allocate the capital correctly and at a good pace as well. So capacity is is very very important for us, um, especially with small cap. Funds. Now, talking about innovation with large caps, I mean, this is quite interesting. There was a study conducted by Harvard, um, Professor Gary Pisano, a professor of business at Harvard, and he rejected the idea that startups are the only companies that are nimble enough to innovate. And clearly, we've had the fangs for the last 10, 15 years. But he concluded on his study that, first and foremost, innovation is about people. It's about the team And large companies throughout history have turned to innovation to grow, but they have to attack it very differently to small caps. They need to create a different strategy. They design a new system and they have to develop a culture. And the last one is absolutely key because you need to hold on to key innovators in the workforce and the innovators need accountability to make decisions quickly. So it's very interesting. It's about people. It always has been and always will be. So you've got to have the right team in place if you're a large cap. You've got to make them accountable, give them flexibility to grow. And I think, um, you know, a, a big mistake is is sometimes that the study sort of showed that large caps use the same system for all types of innovation. And that's where you can go a bit wrong. And he mentioned blockbusters as a, an example of that in the 90s and coming out into the into noughties when Netflix sort of took over. They didn't really adapt to the next uh, transition to to online, and that was that was a big mistake. It was just sort of sticking with the same system they had. Um, mm. So yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, but I think definitely large caps can innovate. They just have to do it very very differently. And we've seen evidence of large cap companies coming through. I've talked about the fangs, but there are other companies that do this. Really, really well. I mean, there's often boring consumer staples companies that have been around for hundreds of years, you know, literally hundreds of years, and and that's that's really interesting. Now, these are large companies that investors consider stodgy. Often, they're giving you low compound annual growth, but they've managed to innovate and change with consumer needs over time. Uh, but it's just different to how technology companies do it. So there's there's longevity, but in different ways.
0: Thank you for that, uh, Kamal, and thank you to Paul Major, who runs the Bellevue Healthcare Investment Trust, to Ian Mortimer, who runs the Guinness Global Innovators Fund, and to Kamal Warach, Head of Equity Fund Research at Canaccord Genuity, and thank you all for listening. Please do remember to tune in to future editions of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you and goodbye.